Hey, it's Ashley C. Ford. I wanted to drop into your feeds and let you know about another HBO podcast I'm loving. It's called In Session, the In Treatment podcast. It's co-hosted by performer, writer, and mental health advocate Brandon Kyle Goodman and Dr. Janelle Pfeiffer, an amazing real live therapist. I was obsessed with the original three seasons of In Treatment, which took audiences into the fictional psychotherapy office of Dr. Paul Weston as he met with his clients week after week. So I was doubly excited to find out that HBO was bringing the show back and focusing on a new therapist, Dr. Brooke, played by the one and only Uzo Aduba. In Treatment and the podcast might not have magic or monsters in it, but they cover a lot of similar themes that Shannon and I got into on this show. Each episode of Lovecraft Country Radio was essentially our therapy sessions, so I know you're going to love this new podcast. The new season started last week, and you know I've already watched all four episodes and listened to In Session. But if you haven't heard it yet, I wanted to make sure you got it right in your feed. So here's the first episode of In Session, the In Treatment podcast. If you want to listen to more, make sure to subscribe wherever you get your pods. Hey, y'all. Just so you know, we're going to be talking about this week's episodes of In Treatment. So spoilers are ahead. There's also some explicit language in this podcast. All right, let's start the show. Hello, 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 and welcome to In Session. So my name is Brandon Kyle Goodman. I'm a writer, an actor, an activist. I'm also Black and queer, honey, and my pronouns are he, him, his, and they, them, theirs. And I would like to introduce my co-host, but you introduce yourself. Why don't you do that? Yes, and my name is Dr. Janelle Pfeiffer. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and a Black woman. I'm also a professor and a mom. And Brandon, I believe in therapy. Hey, Dr. Janelle, you speak in my language because I also believe in therapy. And we are your hosts for In Session, the official companion podcast for the HBO show In Treatment. Yes, In Treatment is back, honey, 10 years after the last show ended. But now there's a different therapist at the center of the show. Her name is Dr. Brooke Taylor, and she's played by the incomparable Uzo Aduba. Time we spend in here, it's yours. Doesn't matter who brought you or whatever their goals are, you can talk about whatever you want. Yes, I love the time we spend here is yours, honey. HBO is airing four episodes of In Treatment a week, two on Sundays and two on Mondays. Our podcast will come out Monday nights. On this podcast, we'll be unpacking and hopefully demystifying what actually happens in therapy by looking at what goes on in the room with Dr. Brooke and her clients each week. Mm, I'm so excited to be seeing Behind the Veil with Dr. Brooke and Dr. Pfeiffer. I'm the luckiest person in the world. So, Brandon, I'm so happy to be hosting this podcast with you. Yes. But I think we should tell people right up front something that's really important. This podcast is by no means a substitute for therapy. Absolutely, Dr. Janelle. You know, we'll make some book recommendations at the end of the show, and you can find some resources on HBO's In Treatment website. But if you need to talk with someone, seek out a therapist. 
Yeah, we should also let people know that we came together just to host this show. So, Brandon, why did you want to do this podcast? Ah. Uh. It's a dope question. Um, I wanted to host this podcast because I am such a mental health advocate. But In Treatment Season 1 was actually my first introduction to what therapy could be like. Mm. I grew up in a very religious household. So everything was, honey, Jesus can handle it. And ain't nothing wrong with Jesus or whatever it is that you believe. But when I needed to kind of work through my baggage around race, my baggage around my sexuality, and how to learn to love my intersections, mm-hmm. uh, and how to navigate family therapy became really, really crucial. And I know through, you know, social media and just people that I interact with, especially in the Black community and especially in the queer community, there's a lot of questions around what therapy is and a lot of fear around it. Mm -hmm. And so doing this show with you, a therapist, uh, and being able to kind of demystify and unpack some of those fears and things is really, really exciting and I think so important and necessary. So that's why I'm here. How about you? A lot of what you said really resonates with me. I'm very much so interested in therapy being something that's accessible and for the people. Yeah. And so I was very excited about the idea of being able to talk about therapy in a way that people can advocate for themselves, can think about their mental health. Mm. And so I was really drawn into that. And for me, as a clinician, as a scholar— I'm all about intersectionality. I'm all about culture. I'm all about the role of who we are and how that impacts how we feel. So I thought that this would just be a wonderful way for us to be able to have conversations about that. I love that. The role of who we are and how it impacts how we feel. This is going to be church for me. (laughs) I'm so excited. (laughs) Mm -hmm. All right. Well, let's get into what came up for us as we watched the life and work of Dr. Brooke Taylor. Am I allowed to worry about you? What do you mean? I mean, I expect you to answer so late. There is plenty for me to work with here. The only question is whether you are up to it. So you were completely authentic in here today? Well, I told you about my sex addiction. I mean, who would tell you it in all of that detail if it wasn't real? But you serve a specific purpose. You're not my friend. Okay. So since I served my specific purpose, I'll go. This first week for me, I was really reflecting on this idea of identity and how that shows up, particularly as you're getting to know your therapist and they're getting to know you as well. Mm. So thinking about this sort of human element of therapy. For me, I was really struck by the words boundaries and what that means. So we see in episode one that boundaries comes up kind of immediately because she takes this phone call from her client at two in the morning. (laughs) Yeah. Hello? Sorry, I know it's late. Are you okay? Yeah, yeah, I'm okay. It's a fucking dream, y'all. Like it's winter and I'm in a field holding hands with a, a little girl, supposed to be my sister or something. Mm-hmm. When she first picked up the phone, I didn't know who the person was. And then we kind of learned that, you know, Eladio is a client. Oh, yes. There's a lot to say there. When she picked up Eladio's call in the middle of the night, I was sort of struck with this idea of, like, what was making her violate what would be a typical boundary for therapy, right? And it made me think of something my supervisor used to always say is if you find yourself doing something out of the ordinary with a client, something that you typically wouldn't do, you're making an exception that you typically wouldn't make, 
it's a pretty good sign or signal that this is hitting on something raw for you. Mm. This is hitting on something that's unresolved and some work that you might want to do when you're like, that's not normal for me to pick up a 3 a.m. client call, right? Um, What is that telling you uh, that's going on? That's self-work. Exactly. Yeah. One of the things she, I think she names in the episode is about transference. Yeah. Transference is the dynamic that can show up in therapy where you are shifting emotions or reactions into the therapeutic work towards your therapist that really doesn't have anything to do with your therapist. It's related to something else in your life. And similarly, in countertransference, it's that situation where the therapist is reacting unconsciously in a way that's related to something in their life outside of therapy. So with Eladio, I mean, you see this transference happening, which is like when the client to the therapist, and then you have what we call countertransference. So when she's meeting with Rita, her sponsor, we see that she's having this reaction to him that's informed by her son, right? Mm. That she had to give up. He has no mother? No, I meant no parents. But you said no mother, and you called him a kid. I see where you're going with that. You just said you were angry at your father for taking your son away. Rita, come on. Everything has meaning, right? I think that boundaries in a therapeutic relationship kind of create the safety for the therapeutic work to be about the work and the client who's coming in. Mm. Because sometimes I have clients who, you know, they'll, they'll even say to me, and I'll feel like similarly, like we could be friends in real life. But then we really like dig into that and unpack that. And I'm like, well, what would that mean if we were friends and you came in for an hour and we were focused just on talking about you? You would be thinking, oh, I need to think about you and I need to ask about you. Yes. And then the therapeutic work is not the focus. If I don't keep the boundaries of the therapeutic relationship, then it gets muddied with a lot of the other things that can show up in our relationships. And I think that it also um, makes it hard to do any of those relationships well, Mm. right? What I'm understanding from what you just said is, oh, the reason boundaries are important is because the therapy session should really be about the client, about the patient, Mm -hmm. yes? Mm -hmm. As opposed to if we were friends, as you said, it would start to muddy because I am concerned about you as opposed to concerned about my work. And so those Mm -hmm. boundaries really allow it, allow me to be selfish, right? And most of the time, we're not able to be selfish in our lives. And it feels like in that hour with your therapist, you can really be selfish in the best way possible. Mm Because that's what you're paying for, right? Is to yeah. is to have somebody help you navigate these tricky uh, potholes in your life. You're kind of like reclaiming the word selfish, yes. like this idea of like if we think about that, the fact that this is a space that is about you, that is about yourself mm-hmm. as a whole, and so that that time is really permission and carved out and protected time yeah. for you. Right. So I'm glad that you said that because I'm taking selfish back. Right? <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> Reclaim <laughs> selfish. It's good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. One thing that I thought about a lot is what is therapy and uh, how do you define a therapeutic relationship? What a like juicy, complex question. I mean, what is therapy? What can it be? <laughs> yes. One of the things that's so interesting about this show is it really does 
introduce this idea of the context of a relationship that is similar in many ways to those intimate, close relationships that we have where we're sharing this vulnerable part of ourself with another human being, Mm -hmm. but that those boundaries are what create the separate space for a therapeutic relationship. Yeah, And as we see the way that Brooke works in therapy, she makes this really good comment that therapy isn't this like solely results-driven space, but it's this place for exploration. I need you to be patient because this work, it's not sexy, it's not fast. But if you trust the process, it... Uh, Eladio, you have two decades of wiring of behavior and neuroses and triggers and pathologies all tangled up. Why would that be simple? Does it sound simple? Of course not. That's why these things take time. This isn't a results-oriented practice. Wait. Is that true? I love that. What came up for me, too, is the building of the relationship between the therapist and the client. Sometimes I feel like people think it has to be a perfect match right away. And what we saw in these episodes, especially with Colin and Layla being new to uh, Dr. Brooke, like seeing how she develops those relationships. For our listeners, like what should you be looking for in a therapist when you're when you're starting to build that relationship? So, I mean, the therapeutic relationship, in my mind, is in many ways a lot like when you're looking for any other type of relationship. Mm. You're looking for that fit. You're looking for that feeling that you can come into the room and be your whole self, who you honestly feel like you can do the sort of work that you've come in to do as well. When I'm talking with my friends or even potential clients, one of the things that I encourage them to do is think about this as a two-sided process. You're wanting to ask questions and really do this gut check of how it feels while you're talking to a potential therapist. Mm. Because in the beginning, until you've built the trust, you don't really know where it's going to go. You're in the stage of kind of searching it out, feeling it out. The building of the trust, I think, is so important, right? Like when you meet somebody new, anybody in life, you don't necessarily trust them right away. And I think, Mm -hmm. at least for me, my misconception was that I needed to trust the therapist immediately, as opposed to what you said, that gut check of how do I feel right now, you know, and can I be my whole self? Or at least, you know, in that first session, can I be comfortable with being part of myself at the very least as you get to know them and show more of you? Mm-hmm. And it gives the the client or us as patients more agency yes. as opposed to the therapist being this god, this untouchable expert. And this idea that you're really deconstructing this concept that this therapist is this expert, this really medical model that you're coming in and you need to follow what they say. It's really this relational piece of, is this a dance that we can do together? Is there going to be this flow? Yes. Yeah, and it doesn't need to be perfect right out of the gate, but you're trying to see if the foundation is there. I mean, that's one of the things I liked in in treatment when you're looking at the building of the relationship with Layla. I feel like when you're working with teenagers, I love working with teenagers. I love adolescents. They're just amazing because there's so much less pretense. So I think building the relationship with Layla, she was met with all this resistance because the reality is I don't know you, right? Like I'm in this situation where I'm coming in, I'm sharing things that feel very raw Yes. And sometimes I'm coming in particularly because I'm trying to work on something that I couldn't quite, like, figure out myself, or in her case, she was forced in. 
But yeah, I think the way that Brooke slowed down and she connected with her on a human level, she was able to get Layla to open up and become less resistant. Yeah. Like when Dr. Brooke had Layla get off the couch and join her in the kitchen and they eat Easter candy together. My first year of college was the first time the Easter bunny didn't show. Sad face. I went and I cleared the aisle at Walgreens and tradition was born. Where'd you go to school? Stanford. Obviously. Obviously? Well, there's a picture of me at six months in a Stanford onesie. Oof. <laughs> I didn't like having to do all the applications, mm. but I like the essays. Some of the questions were, like, so dumb that they were smart, sometimes. Like what? Well, one was imagining if you could email an object. There was, like, a whole story about why, but basically it was if you could pick your favorite thing in the mm. world and tell it anything you wanted. Oh. Sounds like an interesting essay. What did you write about? She found a way to be able to um, take away the pretense of I'm sitting in this chair, you're sitting in this chair, you're supposed to be here. And she found a way to like connect mm. that was going to be responsive to who Layla was. Yes. You watch Dr. Brooke really cater to each individual very differently because she has to deal with what's in the room as opposed to whatever her preconceived ideas of a person would be, of a teenager would be, or of a, of a white man would be, or of a, you know what I'm saying? Yes. And I think that's where you really deconstruct that medical model. You're not coming in the room and it's like, I'm going through these steps, I'm going through this flow, I'm asking these questions, you're doing this thing. Yes. It is this co-constructed, co-created space that's collaborative, that's responsive, that's dynamic. And I think that that's where you feel that fit, where this person comes in and they see you. Yeah. Well, let me ask you about this. Speak, uh, sticking with Layla and Colin, because for me, they were brought in by somebody else. So there was a forcing there. Mm -hmm. So you really felt their boundaries. Would you say that boundaries and defensiveness is one and the same? Ooh, you know what? I think that there's some overlap. There's like a little Venn diagram here. Yeah. Defensiveness can be a way of signaling a boundary, like the warning bell going off that you are coming up against something that I might not be ready to share with you yet. Sure. Like there's some sort of pushback and resistance that's either a signal that, nah, you haven't earned that trust yet. Like you're coming and approaching a place that I need to feel like I need to be defended against. Right. A boundary is the safety railing that creates a space where both the clinician is able to maintain the safety of the therapeutic relationship. Yes. They're being able to maintain the role in such a way that it protects the work. Yes, because boundaries are important for all of us. They keep us safe. This is very basic. Like, don't touch my hair. That's a boundary. <laughs> announcement to the world. <laughs> <laughs> don't touch my hair. Thank you. Um, but defensiveness, mm -hmm. I was just fascinated by Brooke having to navigate that tension, right? Like, it's, it's not somebody willingly coming to you. It's somebody being forced there. Can we talk about that instinct of yours to minimize, downplay, diminish? You did it with the prison time, the breakdown, the crimes themselves. 
You are trying to evade me. I don't know if you realize that. Maybe it's a behavior you learned after being accused of a crime. Maybe it's been around longer than that. Where'd you go? No, I'm sorry. No, you're, you're right. I was just thinking, you're good. I hadn't anticipated that. Usually court-appointed, not exactly the mark of high quality. We should just note here that Colin comes in newly released from prison and Brooke is seeing him pro bono and she has to sign off on him being safe enough to re-enter society. Mm-hmm. So a lot of power dynamics come up between them. And as you know, Colin is... You, I should, well, I'm not a therapist, so I could judge Colin. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not a fan of Colin. <laughs> Colin really stresses me out. So I'm excited <laughs> to see how uh, Dr. Brooke navigates that. Yeah, there's a lot going on with Colin. And I had this visceral reaction to him in the room. I think that there there is a lot of power stuff going yeah. on there. And it'll be interesting to see how that unfolds. You know that moment that really just, I was like... Lord have mercy, was when he said, what is your husband doing? I keep taking in your house. Hmm. This was built in the, the late 60s, right? Good eye. Oh, kind of an architecture buff. Wow. Wowza. What does your husband do? I'm not married. Oh. Colin, sit down. <laughs> no, it's like my life. It's like my life. You know, uh, you people, my whole life, you know, see my credentials or assuming that. And they yeah, question it. Dr. Pfeiffer is my husband, right? Like, you know, there's no way that you belong in this space, this idea. And you can almost see Colin. Yeah. He just like can't really accept that he's in this position where this black woman holds the keys to the gate for him, right? Yeah. Um, it's really, you can tell it's uncomfortable and it and it will be interesting to see if that can be a part of his therapeutic work, right? So how do you, as a therapist, kind of navigate that tension, that tension of defensiveness. Oh, yeah. That piece of when somebody is there who doesn't feel like they have agency, that they didn't choose to be there, that puts the work of building the relationship already back like 100 yards, right? Like it moves the goalpost. Yeah. And I think that the first thing that's so important is figuring out if what brought you here was something that you might not have chosen for yourself, whether it is court-mandated or whether somebody else is encouraging you to be there. I see that a lot in couples' work, right? Sure. Being able to figure out what is the nugget of motivation for you. Like, so being able to really slow down and get to know who you are and see what might you be motivated in in this work and acknowledging the fact that you did not want to be here. Mm. This was not your choice. And I think that it was cool. One of the things that I saw that Brooke did is she just wasn't trying to force it. She wasn't trying to say, if you want to get your early release, you're going to need to play the game. Yeah. She had this way of being able to give back agency. Yeah. I have problems. Lord knows I obliterated my entire existence. No aspect of my life was left unfucked. But depression? Anything like that? That's, it's, it's just a dead end. Okay. No aspect of my life was left unfucked? 
have a way with words. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Crochet that on a pillow, you make some good money. Okay, well, let's talk about that then. What, our pillow business? The way you upended your life. Well, you read the file. Oh, come on. You said it was full of omissions. Correct the record. I feel like that's like, especially when I'm in positions where there's anything where I'm doing gatekeeping as a psychologist, that goes so far away from what my goal is. So thinking about how can you give agency back to the person, even if systems might have taken it away. I love that. So when I was watching Dr. Brooke kind of deal with specifically Colin and Layla, Mm -hmm. I was just thinking... I, as, if I were the therapist, I'd be like, y'all could go home. I'm tired already. How do you sit with that? <laughs> like, how do you extend empathy to clients who are just so actively rejecting the work? That was one of the questions that my mom was most concerned about when I decided to get into mental health. Because she always says that I was, like, just came out of the womb like an empath. Right? Yeah. <laughs> she's all nervous about it. She's like, oh, she's just going to feel so that heaviness. But I think that one of the things that I've noticed, at least in my work, that as an empath, there's something that is pretty cool about being able to play a role in maybe reducing someone else's suffering, right? Because when you go through space and you're like, oh, I can kind of like feel what's going on with other people. I feel really invested in other people. So it doesn't feel burdensome because you actually feel like you can do something. Sure. You can be engaged. Part of that's a huge part of our training is learning self-care. Yes. What does it look like, especially for Dr. Brooke in these episodes, we see really the call to her self-care as her emotional needs are becoming more and more pressing. She is grieving. Yes. She's an orphan now, and she's feeling the pain. Mm. You can see when she is meeting with Rita Mm -hmm. that that's what comes up, is that she's been pushing it down, she's been pushing it down, she's been going through. You have these, like, moments of herself intruding, like, before she's going into session and she gets the call from the funeral home. And she just keeps on shoving it down so she can be present for her clients. And then Rita comes in and she's about to leave and then she's like, no, you're not okay. Nope. Right? <laughs> like that's that's that good friend who's like, uh-uh. <laughs> no, like <laughs> open that door. Exactly. She comes back in and she's like, basically underscoring the fact you can't do this work if you're not also doing your own work, if you're not caring for yourself as a whole person and acknowledging the fact that, yeah, like us as therapists, we have emotional needs too. We have care that we have to invest in ourselves. Like this idea, we use the concept of self as therapist or the fact that like we're the instrument. And if you're not well-tuned, then yeah, the therapeutic work is not going to go off. You can't do this work if you're not doing your own work. And I feel like that is something both for a therapist, but like also for all of us. Like you can't do the thing that you're trying to do in life and accomplish in life and, and, you know, live out your purpose if you're not doing your own work, your own personal self-care. And talking about that episode four with uh, Dr. Brooke and Rita, what I love is seeing behind the veil of this therapist Mm -hmm. and this misconception that a therapist is kind of like the God, the know-all. They they know everything. And my therapist, I uh, I think that she's a queen who can do no wrong. <laughs> she is perfect. <laughs> but I know that she's obviously not, that she's a human. Uh, and so seeing Dr. Brooke, it was a, such a beautiful reminder of like, a therapist is still a person. Mm-hmm. And there are still things that they are challenged with. People often ask, when am I done with therapy? And I'm like, Uh, Never. (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, never. <laughs> like, because as you get older, I mean, just new things happen. Like, mm-hmm. you know, Dr. Brooke has never dealt with losing her dad, right? Mm-hmm. So it's it, these things happen in our lives that you've just never been prepared for. And that is what, you know, doing your own work means, like having to continue to do it. And, and so it was interesting to see how this big thing has happened to her and she's kind of stopped doing her own work. And, and I'm interested to see how that will or if it will impact how effective she can be with her clients. Do you think that it could impact how she deals with her clients? Oh, hell yeah. (laughs) Yeah, like, it's undeniably the way that unaddressed self-care will definitely show up. And I think what you said really stood out to me, this Mm. idea that a therapist isn't perfect. They might be sharing things with you That is work that they're doing in their own life. There can be this overlap between what they might be saying about encountering emotions and taking care of yourself. And we clearly see that that's something that's fallen off for her. I would be surprised. I don't know either. I'm kind of waiting to see what happens. I'm watching watching it, y'all, so we can, you know, so we can stay fresh in this together. But um, I, I would be surprised if, you know, what's going on in her life doesn't show up in her therapeutic work. It's not your job to rescue him. I know I shouldn't have answered the phone. It wouldn't be an issue if you did it for every patient. I know how not to project, all right? I am always monitoring transference. Does he bring up the fantasy? What fantasy? About motherhood, about having a son. When you close your eyes, you picture something. You must. Another thing that I I really find important as a therapist is the ability to consult with other therapists. Yeah. Consultation groups, we do peer supervision, we like read, we research, we talk, not about individual clients, but about our self in the room and what's coming up for us. And oftentimes, I mean, it's it's kind of cool when you are a therapist and you're just surrounded by like these incredible, loving, empathetic, insightful people. They're able to ask questions in such a way where you're like, hey, Janelle, that's not really typical, you know, for you to get angry in the room. What do you think that was about? Mm. So um, having that consultation can be helpful. And I think that Rita really serves that role in episode four, when we see her bring to Brooke's awareness that through her just open-ended questioning, through her being there, through through her being empathetic and warm, she kind of just like helps her come to a point where she realizes, oh, I'm having this reaction because I'm grieving Uh, and because I have this unresolved grief about my son. mm. And that might have been showed up with Eladio. So, Dr. Janelle, let me ask you this actually kind of big question, especially with Eladio, since we've been talking about boundaries and transference. Is there ever a time where breaking that boundary of, like, picking up the phone call is appropriate? Like, is there ever a time that you're like, oh, I could see in this instance why I would break this boundary with with my client in terms of picking up a call or something like that? I think that it would, there can be so many different variables in individual therapeutic relationships. Sure. There could be a situation where it would be appropriate. And I think that some of the things that would be worth considering are, is it sustainable? Like, are you doing something that can be done consistently? So there are some therapies, like, for instance, dialectical behavioral therapy or DBT or more like intensive wraparound therapies where crisis, like reaching out during a crisis is a part of the therapeutic work. And you feel like you can reliably know 
if I need it at this point, I can use this resource and the person's going to be available. There's going to be on-call support. Ah. So the thing that would be destabilizing and that wouldn't feel safe is if sometimes you could do it and other times you couldn't. Right, 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 right. I think Eladio even said at one point, he's like, don't do that. Well, listen, in the future, you can call me off hours in an emergency, but let's just keep it to that, all right? Yeah, don't do that. Don't do what? Slap me on the knuckles or whatever. Like, you told me to call you if I needed you, and I did. You're right. I apologize again. As your therapist, it's on me to delineate the boundaries that are appropriate, and I will be better at that in the future. That's confusing where you opened a door and now it feels like you're slamming it Shutting shut. Shutting it, yes, right? yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And for him, especially, he's got these attachment concerns. And so her ability to set consistent, reliable boundaries is going to be so important because that actually does more harm than good if, like, you're going back and forth. So I think if you can do it sustainably, yeah. if it feels like it is therapeutically and clinically indicate it. Um, And I think this question, especially when it comes to things like talking about yourself or self-disclosure in therapy, the big question that often comes up is, is this serving the clinical relationship or is this serving me? Yeah. Am I doing this because I'm feeling anxious and I want to check on him and that's about my emotions and needs rather than what I feel like might be best for him? Or is this about the clinical work? That's why you got to keep doing your own work. Thank you. Yes, that's a do your own work. Let's talk about what is, I think, one of my most favorite parts of this show as soon as it started is that it's Uzo. Yes. Uh, that that it, Dr. Brooke is a black woman. Yeah. I know we've like jumped up and down off air about this because it's just so exciting. Yeah. And I didn't realize how emotional I would get in seeing Uzo walk onto screen. I knew. I was like, yeah, it's, it's Uzo. It's wonderful. Yeah. But seeing her on screen as Dr. Brooke and looking stunning <laughs> stunning <laughs> ah. um like I, I i was very emotional as you can all hear right now how is it for you to see dr mm-hmm. brooke on screen what was that for you oh man i just i feel like the 13 year old girl inside of me felt just whole and excited and happy. Yes. It's huge. Ugh. Seeing her in this role and what she represents um, in terms of being this incredible Black woman mm-hmm. who's in this role that requires such expertise where she is so brilliant. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, I, I teared up when I saw it for the first time. Um, and I think that it's still so huge in the field because the numbers just aren't there. Like, we we just, oh, it's not, we're not there yet. Yeah, Black women psychologists just make up such a teeny tiny portion of the, the population um, that I think that it gave me such hope, too, to see that she could be this image that, Folks watching this could envision themselves in this, right? 
when you said the 13-year-old girl, that's exactly who I was thinking about because I was like, oh, representation matters. And I know that some 13-year-old girl or boy or uh, non-binary person is going to watch this and be like, oh, my goodness, I didn't know that I could be that mm-hmm. because you didn't see it. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people are going to miss how important it is that Uzo's in this role yeah. and how important Dr. Brooke being a black woman is on this HBO show. Like, it's just really, really uh, not an image that we get to see and revel in. And we're often... Ooh, let's just do it. Let's go there. You know, when we often see these roles, you are what we call the magical Negro. Mm-hmm. Where, like, you, you're just kind of there to help the white people be great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? The emotional mammy. Yes, the emotional mammy. Mm-hmm. And you're perfect. And, you know, you, you say the thing that's really reverent. And then the white protagonist goes off and they're great. Mm-hmm. And what I love is that Dr. Brooke is so flawed from yes. the beginning, you know? Yeah. That she is such a full person from the beginning. She gets to be this incredible expert who gets to really support the lives of her patients, but also she's wrestling with her own demons, and Mm -hmm. she has her own um, baggage and traumas that she's navigating, and it's just so important to so many people to see Dr. Brooke. The show is about her. It's not only about what she does for other people, and... I think so often we have Black women who are in these roles, and like you said, they're serving the purpose of another person's actualization. Yes. The generation, especially for the generation of Black folks who came before us, therapy was for white people. Yeah. This was something that when you have enough money and you have enough privilege, maybe then you sit down and you 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 talk about yourself. Mm. So this idea of really... Uh, transforming the way that we conceptualize who is it for and who can be the person who is doing it, like doing this work. Yes. And I think to your point about, you know, how for us as Black folks and other marginalized groups where you're like, that's for rich white people when they have all the money and they got to deal with their champagne problems. Mm -hmm. Because usually it's a white person that you're going to see as a therapist Mm -hmm. and there's no awareness of the safety and the trust and earning the trust and needing somebody Mm -hmm. Who, not always, right, because not all of her clients are black or of color, but this idea that, like, having somebody who has a similar identity to you can Mm -hmm. create that safe space. Mm -hmm. They're not going to write off your trauma, which I think sometimes can happen when somebody doesn't know. A lot of queer folks feel this. A lot of women feel this. A lot of those of us who are not straight white men Mm -hmm. uh, have felt where we are misunderstood. And so to have therapists of different backgrounds, Mm -hmm. like a Dr. Brooke, who can hold space for uh, your blackness or your womanhood or your queerness or your whatever it is, is so crucial. So I'm I'm just like, uh, just thrilled. I am too. And I think this idea that, yeah, your your therapist doesn't need to check all the boxes that match who you are. Like, I mean, the, one of the most amazing right. therapists who I ever had was a, an older white lady. Yeah. It was like super country and I adored her. <laughs> yes. I adored her. But um, this idea, though, especially when you're at a point where you're doing work, especially if you're navigating spaces as in the margins, it can feel even exhausting to then have to go in and have the overlay of saying, do I need to explain this? Do I need to break this down? It can feel like a relief to go and feel like, okay, I feel like we're starting from a foundation. I'm not saying that we're twins. I'm not saying that we have the whole same life experience. 
But it's like a jumping off point where we can go deeper from that point. But like we saw, she works with a whole range of different clients in this like diverse and like and she brings who she is into each of those spaces. So to the 13-year-old children out there, I just, I'm so excited to see what you're going to become yes. after seeing Dr. Brooke. <laughs> Our time is almost up. Oh, Brandon, I'm so I know. sad. It's so fun. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, time really does fly. It does. But I wanted to leave you, Brandon, and our listeners with some resources and recommendations. So remember, these are not actual therapy, and I really want you to seek professional help if it feels like you should, right? If it feels like that would be helpful for you. So some of the things that I think might be interesting to read based on what we talked about today, Brandon, um, I loved Presumed Incompetent. It's focused on academia, but I think that it has a lot that is relevant to when we think about Dr. Brooke in the room, Mm. particularly in her relationship with Colin, like, you know, how she's establishing um, her role in the room and what it means to be a woman of color in spaces that historically haven't had a there, right? Yeah, um, for sure. Yes. And when we think about bipolar as well, one of the things with Eladio, their exchange is they're talking about the sleeplessness and that feeling of like chasing smoke and all of the different variables related to bipolar and mm. his own concern about the stigma and how people would react to his diagnosis. Um, yeah. One of my favorite books about bipolar, if this is something that might apply to you or if you love somebody who might experience bipolar symptoms, um, An Unquiet Mind is a really good one too to check out. So I added that to our little reading list for this week. Um, and also we talked a little bit about the demographics of the psychology mm. workforce. So I included a little link that might show up there to talk about what that actually looks like in the surveys that the American Psychological Association does to see where are we right now when it comes to representation in the field. Spoiler alert, it's not good. (laughs) (laughs) Plot twist. (laughs) Don't get too excited. If you're like, let's see how we're doing. It's not good. It's not great. I love these. I love I love having these resources. I love having this space to geek out with you. Yes. Yeah. And I just wanted to make sure if this brought up anything for you as you were watching the episode, as you're listening to our podcast, it would be totally expected that this might bring up some emotions for you. Like mm. this might bring up some big feelings. So I always want to remind you, take care of yourself. Um, we have put some resources on the website, but definitely one of the ones that I always like to talk about is the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. That's mm. um, the 1-800-273-8255. They got call. They have chat. They have text-based support. So you can either call, chat, or text in if you feel like you're in crisis. And they're available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days out of the year. So yeah, take care of yourself. Yes. And looks like that's our time for this week. Well, join us next week and be sure to subscribe to the In Session podcast so you are alerted, honey, when new episodes come out. 
In Session, the In Treatment podcast is a production of HBO and Pineapple Street Studios. Please subscribe, rate, review so you don't miss a single episode. Watch new episodes of In Treatment on Sunday and Monday nights on HBO Max. We will see you next week.